weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Please read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. All you need is love, so say the Beatles. Love, a, a wonderful theme, right? But what do we mean by love when we talk about love as Christians? The Beatles, in interviews on the meaning of their song, All You Need Is Love, said, love is everything. What does that mean? Well, clearly they thought it was important, but what kind of love? And according to whose definition? And are there any boundaries to that love that help us to understand where love moves into something unloving? Well, we find ourselves today studying the great love passage of the Bible. You've just heard it read, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure it's familiar to most of us today. It may be one of the most famous passages of the Bible, uh, as it is broadly used in Christian weddings. But knowing the context of where this passage sits in 1 Corinthians, the love described here is not marital love, the love of marriage, as wonderful as that is. It's not even parent love, as beautiful as that can be, the love of father and mother for children. The love described in this passage is Christian love, the love that Christians are to have toward other Christians, the love that Christians are to have toward one another, specifically in the context of the local church. So if you haven't turned there already, let me ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It will help you as we study this passage, and we're going to be looking at the middle section of 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter in the middle, smack dab in the middle, of the Apostle Paul's discussion on gifts and their usefulness in the church. In, uh, the first century, Corinth was a large Roman city that was quite cosmopolitan. It was a trade city a city in which sailors were coming and going, uh, but it was a city full of sin as well. And the church at Corinth, young as they were in the faith and young as they were as a church, were easily tossed and swayed by the ideas and the actions of the world around them. The Apostle Paul is in a section in 1 Corinthians where he's dealing with problems of, uh, of the way members were relating to one another in the public gatherings of the church. And so Paul is addressing their public gatherings. He started talking about this back in chapter 11. Then he speaks specifically to how to use spiritual gifts in the life of the church. That's chapters 12 to 14. We finish chapter 12, and Paul finishes chapter 12 by making it very clear that not everyone has the same gift, 
All of us who are Christians have spiritual gifts, but we have different ones. And there is to be unity in diversity in the body of Christ where we are using our gifts to build one another up, but also realizing our interdependence upon one another and realizing our need for others in the body of Christ. The church at Corinth was divided over many things, but one of the things that they were divided over was which gifts were the most important. And Paul's going to make it clear in the next chapter, chapter 14, that more important than the gift of tongues, as exciting as that was, is in fact the gift of prophecy. But before he says this, he tells them at the end of chapter 12, you, church at Corinth, eagerly desire the greater gifts, that is the gifts that will have the most impact on the church as a whole. But before he tells them what those greater gifts are, Paul pauses his discussion on gifts, zooms out, and tells them that there's something much more important even than spiritual gifts. As important as gifts are in the life of the church, there is something even more important, and that is love, Christian love. So in the first three verses, which we looked at our last time, the Apostle Paul made it clear that gifts are important, but love is essential. That was verses 1 through 3. He articulated in verse 1, gifts of speech minus love equals noise. He said in verse 2 of chapter 13, gifts of knowledge and faith minus love equals nothing. That's the equation sacrifice minus love as well equals nothing. So as we saw last time, gifts are important, but love is essential. Here in our section, verses 4 to 7, Paul's main point is this, if you're taking notes, Christian love in action is the solution to all of the church's problems. Christian love in action is the solution to all of the church's problems. What Paul does here in zooming out and focusing in on love before he gets back into his discussion on uh, the use of gifts in the life of the church, Paul holds out love as the solution, in fact, to all of their problems. Paul here will define and describe love for us, but in doing it, he is actually pointing to love as the solution to all of the problems that were going on in the church of Corinth. And there were many problems. We're going to mention some of them today as we look at this passage. And as we think about this passage, we're going to find that this is not ultimately, this passage, a definition of love as much as we might think that it is. Rather, it is a description of love. And it is a description of love in the form of a rebuke. Uh, When we have passages like this read in weddings, it sounds beautiful, right? All of these descriptions of what love is like. It is heartwarming. But if you were there in first century Corinth, and if you had read everything up to this passage... Uh, and you had then listened to chapter 13 in light of everything that Paul has already said, in light of the things going on in the life of the church, this passage would not feel to you sentimental and heartwarming. It would, in fact, be quite visceral and gut-punching. Because what Paul is doing in his description here is highlighting all of the ways in which the believers at the church at Corinth were not being loving. This passage would, in fact, be for them toe-stepping. Paul is stepping on lots of toes in this passage. Uh, We could say that many, I'm sure, were even offended as they listened to Paul's description of what love is and what it isn't. 
understood in its context, this passage is a description of Christian love. Christian love. Um, realize here that Paul is doing two things. One, this isn't a mere definition. He's not defining it. It is a description. That is, he's describing what it's like, what love is like, and what it isn't like. Actually, he has more things that it isn't like than what it is like. But he also does something else in terms of uh, the structure here. He has love displayed and personified. Paul actually personifies love here. I don't know who of you are the literary people here. I was pretty terrible at math and science, so I focused more on history and literature. Uh, Personification is taking an inanimate object and speaking of it as if it's alive or animated. Um, You can think of children uh, imagining with their toys, they will personify their toys, take their inanimate objects and personify them and give them um, personalities. You can think of uh, Winnie the Pooh as an example of this. Anytime you watch Winnie the Pooh, it starts with these pictures of a a child's bedroom with a toy, a teddy bear with a toy piglet and a toy donkey, and the writer is personifying these inanimate objects and giving them life. We have similar things that go on in the Bible in other places. In uh, the book of Proverbs, we see wisdom personified, described as a woman. Wisdom is described as this woman who invites the foolish and the simple to come and to learn from her and to, to find life a personification of wisdom as a woman. Well, here, love is personified because as you read these descriptions, it isn't simply describing love with adjectives. It's actually describing love in action with verbs. This doesn't always come across in the translation, but in the original Greek, each of these words are action verbs. And what Paul is doing is describing what love does and what love doesn't do, what love is and what love isn't. And in this way, love is personified. Well, how should we hear this description as we jump in and consider each of these descriptions? Dive in. One, I want you to understand that as you read this description, we should always be looking back to understand what God is like. Because, friends, if we are Christians, our understanding of what love is like comes from God. Our loving God, who is, he calls himself love. Uh, D.L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, tells of his life-changing encounter with the doctrine of love. Uh, Andrew Strach uh, describes this. This began when Henry Morehouse, a 27-year-old British evangelist, preached at Moody's church for a week, for an evangelism week. It was a, a conference that went on every night. And to everyone's surprise, Morehouse preached seven sermons in a row on one verse, John 3.16. And he was taking this text as his verse to prove to Moody Church that God so loved the world. And he preached on the love of God from Genesis to Revelation with John 3.16 as his text. Moody's son records his own father's description of the impact on Morehouse's preaching. For six nights he had preached on this one text. The seventh night came and 
He went into the pulpit and every eye was upon him, wondering what it was he was going to preach on that seventh week, sorry, that seventh night. And he said, beloved friends, I've been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find anything so good as the old one. So we will go back to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse. And he preached the seventh sermon from those wonderful words, God so loved the world. I remember the end of that sermon, my friends, he said, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot, I cannot do it with this poor and stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say would be, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, as you listen to this passage, I hope that you can be affected like Moody was, thinking long and thinking hard and thinking deeply on the love of God for us. Because here we have not only a description of the way that we're supposed to love, but these, all of these descriptions, the way that God loves us. We had a wonderful sermon on this last week as Alex spoke for us from Romans 8, Romans 8 verses 31 and 32. God, who did not hold back his very own son, but gave him up for us all, we can have confidence in his love for us displayed in, his, in the gift of his son. That's the first way we should listen to this, is to understand more of God's love for us. The second way that we should listen to this is to realize our own need um, to apply this. There can be a temptation when we read a passage about Christian love to read it with our arms crossed, to read it looking around, to read it looking for all of the people around us who have failed to meet the test, to make the grade, and to love us the way that they should be loving us. Alexander Strach again says, do not use this passage to tell other people that they have no love. Some of the most loving people I've ever known have been wrongly accused of a lack of love. And most often people who say that others have no love are themselves the ones most lacking. Friends, as we read this, as we study this today, we should allow God's Word to be a mirror, first and foremost, on our own lives and help us to understand all of the ways that we have failed to love in ways that imitate our loving God. Well, let's dive in and look at how love is described here by the Apostle Paul. Look first at the first two definitions or descriptions of love of what love is. First, love is patient. Second, love is kind. Love is patient. Another translation says love is long-suffering. Uh, love is patient, meaning not concerned primarily with our own time or our own priorities over the needs of others, but love is patient. The church at Corinth was impatient when it came to celebrating uh, the love feast. Paul had to rebuke them back in chapter 11 for their impatience and eating early and eating too much and not allowing more food for those that would come later. Those that were poor, the, the slaves who had to finish their day laboring before they could come. And Paul is shocked to hear that some people are so this impatient people was not, as Paul commands them, just the chapter, two chapters before, to wait for one another. Other translations call this 
being long-suffering. There's clearly aspects here of being patient in the midst of being mistreated by others, of being long-suffering and able to be patient in loving people even when they are unloving and even when they are unkind towards us. Love is patient. Paul begins with two positive explanations of what love is and what love is like. First, it is patient. Second, it is kind. Paul uses two words that are also in his list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 to head his list of what love is like. Love itself includes these other attributes. It acts with kindness towards others. To be kind, to express love through kindness, means that we are not harsh or severe, that there is a warmth to our love, that there is a concern with the well-being of others, and a genuine concern that isn't withdrawn, but that causes us to move towards those who are in need. Kindness causes us to move towards those in need of love. Benoit used the the wonderful illustration of the love that he is seeing at work there in India, in South India, among um, Indians coming to know Christ. Indians out of a Hindu background with their caste system coming to know Christ. And that caste system that's been in place for centuries and centuries is an opportunity for people to learn to show kindness to one another. He used the illustration of being there when um, and untouchable, those even below the lowest caste, when a brother came to know Christ from that caste, met another Christian who was a, a Brahmin. He knew by his last name, hearing his name as he was introduced, that he came from a higher caste. And this man instantly withdrew because he just assumed that he wouldn't be allowed to be close to this man. And that man drew near him with kindness and said, No, you are my brother. Do not draw back. And he gave him a hug. He let him know that he loved him. This is to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And it draws near to them with love. Not waiting for others to love us, but showing kindness to others. This kind of kindness uh, is surprising in a world so full of unkindness. Augustine himself, in his confessions, describes how even during his unconverted days, there was a renowned preacher, Ambrose, who met him on different occasions before Augustine came to know Christ, and Augustine records in his confessions that that man received me like a father and expressed pleasure at my coming with a kindness most fitting in a a pastor. And he began to like him at first, not because he taught the truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in his church, but as a human being who was kind to me. This kind of kindness is so different from a world. It is so unkind that it should be striking both to Christians among us, but even to non-Christians too. He then turns to have a list of eight things that love isn't. We have then eight of them. Each of these as well are action verbs, but it's describing the things that love isn't and that love doesn't do. Look first there. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous. Love rejoices in the good that comes to others. Uh, In chapter 12, 
Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about those having um, great gifts and others feeling like they don't belong because their gifts are inferior. And he speaks to those that have a spiritual inferiority complex. And he tells them that they should not feel like they're not a part of the body because they're not gifted as great as someone else. He shouldn't, such a Christian shouldn't think that because I'm not gifted like that person that I don't belong here. This is perhaps a command to those who don't have such evident, obvious speaking gifts, that they should not envy the gifts of others and be jealous of the great gifts that others have, but there should be a contentment in love that is excited that God is at work in other people and be happy to promote those people and their gifting and be encouraged by it. It's also possible that Paul is referring back to chapter 3, where we, he talked about the, the divided church. These divided Christians were wanting to promote themselves by their association with some leader that they knew, or perhaps some leader that had led them to Christ. This was leading to a division where they were envying and fighting with one another and saying, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter or Cephas. Paul's making it clear here that there is no room for envying or for jealousy in Christian love or in the church. The second thing that he lists here is that love does not boast. It does not brag. It does not brag about gifts or knowledge. It does not boast thinking that they are in some way superior to other Christians. This is the thing that Paul has to address there in 1 Corinthians 12. Not only does he encourage those that have that spiritual inferiority complex, he speaks to those that have a spiritual superiority conflict complex sorry, and tells them that you need to realize that you are interdependent upon every other member of the body of Christ. And as great as you are, you may only be one eye or one ear or one hand. You are only one part of the whole. And so, what do we have that we've not been given? Those of us who have come to know Christ should realize that we have nothing to boast in except for Jesus Christ. Some, Paul uses the word to boast, were puffed up with their knowledge, and in chapter 8 were boasting over the freedoms that they had. And so Paul actually had to address those that boasted in their freedoms and were happy to exercise their freedoms, their Christian liberties, even when it meant harm to other brothers and sisters in Christ. He had to correct these people for their boasting because there is no boasting in love. Love does not boast. The next thing connected to this is that love is not proud. It is not arrogant. It is not literally puffed up. To be proud or puffed up is to have an inflated sense of your own worth and of your own importance. But love is not proud. It is not puffed up. It is not seeking to promote itself and to look down on others. No, those of us that have come to know love in God realize that everything that we have is a gift from us. And in relation to God, there is Paul has to correct them for their pride back in chapter 4, verse 6, and verse 18, and verse 19, and chapter 5 for their pride and not dealing with open, outright, unrepentant sin in the church. He says that you've been proud and you've refused to deal with this sin. It sounds like they were proud of the, 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 the modern perspective of some of their own members. And yet, Paul says this is incest going on in the life of the church, and it must be dealt with. 
Not only is it sexual immorality, but of a, a terrible kind. And he rebukes them twice in chapter 5 for their pride and not dealing with it. You know, friends, that it is prideful to not look at sin the way that God sees it. Well, then he says, love is not rude. It is not unseemly. It does not act in ways that are unbecoming or dishonorable. Now, this word is described in chapter 7 to talk about those that were mistreating um, young women. Looks like there were men that were leading women on and then abandoning them and confusing them and actually using their uh, position in society to harm others. Paul says here, love is not unseemly or rude. The Um, That word is exactly used in chapter 7, but it may also have reference as well to the way that they were dealing improperly in the church by rudely seeking to promote themselves and cut each other off in order to promote their own gifts. He's going to say in chapter 14 that everything in the church must be done decently and in order. There's no room for rudeness, self-promotion, and cutting others off and mistreating others uh, when it comes to the church. Next Love is not self-seeking. It does not seek its own. Jonathan Edwards describes this in his wonderful uh, group of sermons, Charity and Its Fruits. He describes here that love is the opposite of a selfish spirit. He describes what it was like when, uh, when men... And women in the fall fell. He says very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. This is Jonathan Edwards describing what happened at the fall was we went from loving God and loving each other to descending into mere self-love. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous, but now he is debased and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, Jonathan Edwards says, the mind of man shrank from its previous greatness and expandedness, now to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. His soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love before where it was enlarged to comprehend all of his fellow creatures and their welfare and to be concerned with God as well. But once he turned in sin to rebel against the Creator, it says that he then moved from this excellent largeness of soul and he shrank, as it were, into a little space. circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness, and God was forsaken, and fellow creatures were forsaken, and man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul. And the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. This is a description by a pastor of what happened at the fall when we turned from the perfection that we had been created in 
and rebelled against God. We went from loving God and loving others to now simply seeking our own things and becoming selfish. This is a Another negative description, it says here that love is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. That is, at the expense of others. But rather than seeking simply its own good, love is concerned with the good of others. Now, as you think about this definition, we live in a culture today that is all about self-love and all about self-care and all about self-fulfillment and self-actualization. This idea of being concerned with self is popular and not let others tell you what to do or control you. You need to do you and be you and care for yourself, even love yourself. This is promoted as a good thing. And yet here, what does love do? Christian love, friends? Well, it's the opposite of that. It's not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking, but seeks The good of God and his glory and the good of other people. You see, next here, love is not irritable. It's not easily angered. It is not um, a hair trigger, but a long fuse. I grew up hunting, so I can use illustrations like this. A hair trigger means you can adjust your trigger on your gun to where only a tiny little press, the gun will go off. What do we mean when someone is not to have a hair trigger when it comes to their temper? It means it shouldn't be something small that sets them off and they explode with anger. No, Christians should have a long fuse. They're not irritable. They're not easily angered. I think of this whole list. This was the most convicting for me. There's something about being a parent that has caused me to be irritable. It's not my fault. It's my kids. No, this is a problem with all of us. And sometimes we're, we're quick to justify it, that, that we were right to give in to this anger, that this is some kind of righteous anger. But friends, love is not irritable. It's not easily angered. It is patient and long-suffering and does not justify anger, but repents of it. We are to be those that remember God's love for us, his patience of us, and his forgiveness to us, and grow in having a a long fuse rather than a hair trigger. Well, the last two negatives, it does not keep a record of wrongs. This is convicting. Love is not calculating. It's not tabulating. It's not brooding. It's not resentful. And this may specifically refer back to chapter 6 with the lawsuits that members of the church were engaging in, dragging brothers and sisters in the church to court and dealing with their disputes in a public setting with non-Christian judges and embarrassing Paul and bringing reproach on the name of Christ for their inability to love each other, to forgive each other. Here, Paul says, love does not keep record of wrongs. And as well, now two together does not take joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love finds no joy in wickedness or unrighteousness. Love does not promote or take joy in sin or anything that would be unrighteous, but in contrast to that, love rejoices in the truth. We remember back in chapter 5, there was sin, outright sin, of incest going on in the life of the church at Corinth. And he says that they were proud 
not dealing with the sin in the church. Well, then in chapter 6, he has to deal with people continuing to go to prostitutes as Christians, and he's shocked by this. Here, Paul is highlighting there should be no joy found in the Christian in anything that is contrary to God, to his law, or to his rules. In contrast with that, love rejoices in the truth. That is, things that are true or a lifestyle that is in line with that truth that we proclaim. We as Christians delight in anything good, anything of good report, Philippians 4, 8 and following. We are to think and to dwell on these things and to delight in what is good. Well, finally, we have four that are grouped together. These four are a chiasm with the first and the fourth going together and the second and the third going together. We'll deal with the middle two first. It says here that love believes all things and hopes all things. This may be a reference to the things that these Corinthians were willing to reject in terms of the truths of Christianity. Those that love God will believe everything that he has uh, revealed, and those that love God will hope in all of his promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, they were questioning the resurrection, questioning whether or not there was a resurrection, questioning even whether or not Christ had been raised from the dead. And Paul will, in the chapters to come, have to deal with this. This may be a precursor to that, though most commentators think that this believes or hopes all things in light of the fact that all of these other descriptions describe a relation to one another in the church, that what this actually refers to is not believing truth necessarily, but believing that God can change people and hoping that God will. Calvin takes this view and expresses it well. Love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart than injure a brother by suspicion. It's always ready to think the best to put the most favorable construction on anything when it means that love believes and hopes all things, perhaps what Paul means here is assumes the best and hopes that people will and can change. Well, then we have these final summaries. Love bears all things and endures all things. Love is long-suffering and is willing to bear the burdens of others and willing to even endure the hurts of others because of the concern for the good of the church as a whole. Paul then goes on to say the thing that we usually end this passage with, love never ends, though that is actually for the next section. We're going to look at this next week, because chapter 8 to the end is Paul now describing love as being eternal. And we're going to look next week at how love is the one thing that will last into eternity. For heaven will be, as John Edwards puts it so well, a world of love. All of these other things are going to come to an end, but love never will. Love will be our state with God and with one another, believers, for all eternity. But that's for next week. Love never ends. Now, how do we read this passage? Well, I've said at the beginning, we need to read it understanding what God is like. We also need to read it putting up the mirror of God's Word to see what we are like. I wonder, friends, how do we add up? How do you add up? How do you add up, I'm going to apply this secondarily first, in the way that you do love your spouse? This is a secondary application. Even if you had this passage read at your wedding, which is a wonderful thing to do, I will not tell you not to. It is a secondary application of this passage to consider, how am I loving my husband? How am I loving my spouse? Let's begin here. 
Friends, does this description, this list of descriptors, describe you and the way that you love your spouse? Years of marriage can lead to years of hurt if love looks like the things that love doesn't do according to this list and doesn't look like the things that love is to be and to do according to this list. I want to encourage marriage. If there are things here that you need to confess, let me encourage you even today to confess these things to your spouse and to seek forgiveness and to ask God's help to help you to change. I wonder, in terms of another secondary application, parents, how, how are we doing in loving our children? Does our love for our children line up with this list? Do we use the authority that God has given us with harshness or with an authoritarianism? Or does our love look something like the love that God has for us in the way that we parent our children? I know, as one who fails even daily, that we will not do this perfectly. And yet, friends, let me encourage parents, fathers, mothers, to model repentance when you fail with your children. Go to your children. Get on your knees and ask your children to forgive you for the ways that your parenting has not been loving. That's some secondary application, but in terms of how we apply this more directly, friends, how are we doing as a church? I wonder, is there anything on this list that you can look around and see someone that you have failed when it comes to this list in the way that you have loved them or not loved them, the way that you have done positive harm to them or simply harmed them by your own withdrawal from them? Friends, let me encourage you, if there is anything in this list that pricks your heart and causes you to sense that you are out of fellowship with a brother or sister in Christ, pursue that. We're actually having communion after this service. This is a, a wonderful time to evaluate our own lives and particularly the way that we relate to one another as Christians. Friends, we should read this list first and foremost in terms of primary application with the way that we love one another in the church. Well, we should not simply read this list and simply feel the weight of God's law upon us. For while this is a demonstration of God's law, it's more than that. When it comes to God's law, when it comes to God's standards, we should not, as Christians, we should not, even as non-Christians who are wanting to know Christ, simply look at God's standards and despair. No, we need to look at God's standards, and that should cause us to look to Christ. If you turn really quickly to 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John describes... The command. What John does is he points us towards Jesus. He says, This is how we know, 1 John 2, verse 2, that we know him, that is, that we know God, if we keep his commandments. He's describing here the change that takes place for Christians where we come to know Christ and then we begin to live a life that's honoring to him. The one who says, I have come to know him, verse 4, and yet doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should what? Should walk even as he walked. Who's the he? Christ. 
John then says, verse 7, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Paul, I'm sorry, John, is going to go on to tell them they need to love each other and they need to not hate each other. So what is this old command? Well, it's the command to love God and to love your neighbor that comes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus. 19. And John's saying, I'm not giving you a new command. I'm giving you an old command. That command's been there from the beginning. But he says it's a new command. How is it a new command? Well, look at John chapter 13. In John 13, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And as he's about to go to the cross at the upper room, before he eats the meal with them, he gets down on his hands and knees. And what does Jesus do? He washes his disciples' feet. He gets to the end of washing his disciples' feet, and then he tells them, do you know, verse 12, what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I am your Lord and teacher, and if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When it comes to this description of love, we are to look at Jesus first and foremost because Jesus is the perfect revelation of what God is like. I told you a description of love, but how do we know most clearly what God is like? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 that God has spoken to us and the prophets, but he has actually spoken to us most clearly. How? Through his Son. The greatest revelation of our loving God to us is not simply what he's given us in his word, but what he has shown us in the person of Jesus Christ. That person, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who humbled himself, who left heaven's riches and heaven's throne and came to earth to lay down his life for sinners like you and me. We can look to Jesus and understand what love is like. And he is all of the things on this list that it describes positively. And he is none of the things on this list that is described negatively. Our Savior was patient when he came. And long-suffering. He was mistreated and abused. And he was patient. He was kind and warm even towards sinners, even towards great sinners. He was never envious, he was never boastful, he was never arrogant, he was never rude, he was never self-seeking. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was not irritable, but patient when he was mistreated. Even blessing those that were nailing him to the cross and asking the Father not to hold their sin against them because they did not know what they were doing. He didn't have a hair trigger, he didn't call down angels to to deliver him from the cross. But he was patient under suffering. Now the only one who should and does keep a record of wrongs. Jesus is our good and right judge. And he is the one who will judge all. The books will be open. But the one who has every right to keep a record of your wrongs and mine has kept that record. But that record didn't cause him to judge. But it actually caused him to come and to establish a new record. A record of perfect holiness through his life. And then he took the record of our sins upon himself on the cross. Finding no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth. He 
bore all things, including our sins in his body. He believed all things, including believing the promises of God and trusting his Father to deliver him. And he did, based on the hope that was before him, endure. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this list should describe for you what Jesus is like. It should help you to understand what it is that you need in terms of a Savior. For this list, it reveals our sin and our need for judgment. And yet it should also paint a portrait and a picture for us of what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done. Friends, if you're here and you are a Christian, you have not simply a list of things to do now, a to-do list, but you have a person to look to. And that person that we look to is the one who saved us from our sins and also the one who will empower us to live a life that reflects something of what he is like. He will empower us with his strength to be Christians and to be the kind of church that reflects him and that gives a savor of heaven. I'm excited to preach next week about how heaven is a world of love and the church is to be a foretaste of heaven, a a, a sweet foretaste of what heaven will be like as we grow together and as we draw near to one another and as we build one another up in Christ as we display the love that we have received in Christ and the way that we love each other. Friends, I pray that this list of Christian love would not simply discourage us, but would encourage us as it points to Christ, and that we would then look to Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit to reflect something of what he is like in the way that we love each other. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess Love is what we need and will solve the problems that we have as a church. Lord, thank you for revealing love to us, not only in giving up your own son, but in sending him and showing us in the person of Jesus Christ what love is like. Lord, we pray we would have power by your spirit to repent of the things that need to be repented of and to find strength to do the things that you're calling us to do for your honor and glory and for the good of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've gathered together today as well, not only to sing praises to our God and to pray and to hear from his word, but also to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances that Christ has given to his church. The first being baptism, the first step of obedience of the Christian. The first ordinance of baptism is a one-time first step of obedience That is an initiatory rite bringing us into the church. It's like the front door into the church. The Lord's Supper is then like the family meal in the church where we regularly continue to practice the Lord's Supper until Christ returns, reminding ourselves of our unity in Christ through his death, the bread symbolizing his body and the juice, his blood. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let me say quickly, this Lord's Supper is for Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we are glad for you to just let these elements pass. If you're not a Christian, if you're here and you are a baptized Christian, and you're a part of another church in good standing or a member of this church in good standing, we are happy for you to take the Lord's Supper with us. Whether you are immediate family members or extended family members, this is a meal for Christians, and we invite Christians to take it with us today. Well, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let's pray to the Lord and prepare our hearts.
Almighty and most merciful Father, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we confess that we are sinners and that we have strayed from you like lost sheep. We have followed too much the desires of our own hearts and have sinned against you. And yet we know that our status before you and our standing at this table is not based on what we have done, but on what Christ has done for us. We know that you are a merciful God, and so we pray for forgiveness for the things that we have done and the things we have left undone. And we ask that you would, through Christ, according to your promises in Christ, restore us, we pray, and grant us, for Christ's sake, to walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.